I'm excited to get to share with you today the second week in a series that we're calling The Fingerprints of Jesus, uh, taken out of Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And we're going to read that in just a minute, but let's pray together and uh, ask that the Lord would bless our time. So Father, we thank you that you promised that your word never returns void. And Lord, as we open your word today, we pray that you'd speak to us through it. Lord, we thank you that the word is living and active, and it's able to change our lives. And so Lord, as we share together, we pray that at the end of this, it would be all about Jesus, all about Jesus, and we would love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So if you have a Bible or we'll have it on the screen here, you can turn to Luke chapter four. We're focused in on verses 18 and 19, uh, but we're going to read a little bit more. We're going to go back and start in verse 14 of Luke chapter four. All right. So it says, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the spirit and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. By the way, Zach said, you all might think I'm just memorized all these verses, but I can read it right there. So just so you know, I'm cheating a little bit. Okay. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, as he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You know, in the uh, gospel of Luke up to this point, we've been reading about Jesus' early life. We've read about his miraculous birth, the miraculous birth of John the Baptist. We've read about uh, him growing up a little bit of insight into his growing up years, and then his baptism by John the Baptist. And it says that immediately the spirit leads him out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. Now in Luke chapter four, verse 14, he has just come down after that uh, wilderness testing experience. And he is beginning for the first time his public ministry. It says the spirit of the Lord's on him. And it says that people are astonished everywhere he goes. He's teaching in their synagogues. And my guess is they're astonished because it's not just teaching, although it, we know that when Jesus taught, there was authority and something different on his teaching than what most people ever experienced. But it, I have a feeling that there were lots of signs and wonders happening. I mean, when I read that the spirit was on him, I'm thinking stuff's happening because everybody's marveling. And now he comes to his hometown, Nazareth, and everybody's come to see the boy Jesus who's grown up that's doing, we're hearing these crazy things about him. And he's in the synagogue like he normally did. And they ask him to do the scripture reading for that day. So the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him. Now we don't know if Jesus got to pick the part that he read or they gave him the assigned reading for the day. It really doesn't matter. But he turns it to Isaiah 61 and begins to read this passage that we read about here in verses 18 and 19, where he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor and so forth and so on. He finishes that out. There's this kind of weird silence in the room. He sits down. You can feel the 
kind of the emotion of that. Everybody's looking at him. What's he going to do? What's he going to say? And he says this, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, Luke's the only gospel writer that mentions this story. But this story tells us something about what the Messiah, who the Messiah is and what the Messiah does. Last week, I think you talked about Jesus and the Spirit of the Lord being upon him and God anointing him, who he is. But today we start focusing our attention on what he does. It says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and so forth and so on. You look at the rest of that, but I get to focus on the good news to the poor Uh, part of it. Now, remember, up to this point, there's only a handful of people on the earth that know that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, his mother Mary knew, right? An angel came and told her. Uh, And of course, Joseph, his earthly father, got in on that deal as well. Uh, His aunt Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, knew because when Mary came to visit, we know the Lord spoke to her about uh, who Mary was carrying in her womb. Uh, There were a few shepherds that knew, right, that the Lord came to announce it. There were a couple of wise men. Uh, There was a man named Simeon that was in the temple waiting for the Messiah. There was Anna, and there was John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus just before that. So there's a few folks that know what's going on with Jesus, but most people don't know who this is. And if you will, this is Jesus' big coming out party. It's the time for God to reveal his son. And how he reveals his son is really interesting to me. Now, there, the, the uh, prophets, or not the prophets, the scholars tell us that there's 400 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. 400. Isn't that amazing? And uh, I think about some of the different ways they could have announced him. I mean, one of them, we'll have it up on the screen here, is out of Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 6. This is such a familiar one to us. Now, why didn't God choose to announce his son this way? For us, To us, a child is born, a son is given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I mean, that's an awesome messianic promise, isn't it? And Jesus fulfilled everything written in there. It's true about him. But that's not the way that God chose to announce his son. I think about another one, Psalm 110. You know, Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. In another passage that talks about this coming Messiah, it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You guys familiar with this? You've heard this if you've read your Bible. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And it goes on. I'm not going to read the rest of that passage, but that would have been an awesome way to announce Jesus as well. Or maybe one of my favorites would have been uh, out of Psalm chapter two, uh, where it says this. We're going to move on to that. Okay. Uh, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father 
Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You know, all of these are true of Jesus. He fulfilled every one of these. And so many more, 400. Can you imagine that? 400 things in the Old Testament he fulfilled. But of all these verses, and all the ways Jesus could have been announced, the Lord chose to bring him out publicly and to announce to the people, this is the Messiah, by quoting Isaiah 61. Why? And that's confusing. It was confusing to the disciples. You know, they lived with the guy for three years, night and day. They saw what he did. They heard what he taught. And then at the end of his life, after he's been resurrected, right before he's going up into heaven for the last time in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they come to him and they say, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore your kingdom to Israel? They were still confused about the Messiah and what he did. Or I think of the one that's really most interesting to me is Matthew 11, where we read about John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is in prison, and just a couple of chapters before, he has baptized Jesus. Remember, he said, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. He saw the dove come on Jesus. He heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was there for all of that. And now just a couple of chapters later in Matthew 11, we find John the Baptist asking the question. He sends his disciples to say to Jesus, are you the one that we were looking for? Should we look for somebody else? It was confusing. And Jesus responds like this. He says, go back and tell John the Baptist, what you see and what you hear. He said, first of all, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he adds this verse, and blessed is he who does not stumble on account of me. Some passages say, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. This is the one the Lord chose. This is how he chose to say it. In other words, you guys have an idea of what the Messiah is going to look like when he comes. But I want to tell you what the Messiah is going to look like. He's going to be one who preaches the good news to the poor. Now, this passage and passages like this uh, led Julie and I on a journey starting in the mid-90s to try to understand what is it about the poor that so captures God's heart. Now, you can read scriptures like one of my favorite ones is in Psalm 113. It talks about, it says, the Lord is exalted over the nations. His glory is above all the heavens. He said, he who is like the Lord our God who sits, on throne down, who sits enthroned on high? says he stoops down or he humbles himself to behold the things on heaven and earth. I remember a time when we were in uh, Wyoming on a family vacation. Any of you ever been out there to Wyoming or Montana? You know that nighttime, if you go out, the sky is unbelievable. I mean, the stars just fill the whole sky. And I remember being out there and looking at the stars and having that kind of terrifying feeling. I don't know if you've ever done this where it's like, oh my gosh, God is so big and I'm so little. You know, it's like, ah, I could die. It's like when you're a kid and you stood and looked at a skyscraper, you know, up there and it's like, oh my gosh, it's so overwhelming. And I read this passage and God says, those stars that are overwhelming you, I have to humble myself to look at those. That's how big I am. But what does this big God do? Look at the next verse and what it says. It says, he raises the poor from the dust. 
and he lifts the needy from the ash heap, and he seats them with princes, with the princes of his people. And it says he settles the childless woman in her home as a happy mother of children. This is what God does, this big God that has to humble himself. He's focused all his attention on the poor. Another one is in Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 68, verses 5 through 6. It says, God in his holy habitation is a, uh, he's a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widow. This is where, when I read he's in his holy habitation, that means when he's hanging out there, when he's at home, when he's doing what he does, this is what God's thinking about. A father to the fatherless and a defender of the widow. And so we started on this crazy journey, like, why God? I mean, for Julie and I, this was not anything we'd ever experienced. I mean, in terms of the world standards, we didn't know anything of being poor or poverty. And so we went on this journey. And we came across this passage, and I've got it all written up here, but I'm not going to go into it because it's too long. But it's in Jeremiah chapter 22. And it's, uh, the story is the prophet Jeremiah has come to the king's of Judah, the last of the kings of Judah, before Israel is going to be led into captivity. And he's warning them. Now, the last of the good kings is a guy named Josiah. And after him, he has these knucklehead sons that come one after another that keep disobeying God. And he comes to one of his sons, Jehoiakim, and he says this, and I'm going to pick it up in verse uh, 15, uh, 15 at the end of it. He said, he says, did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, so all went well with him. Is this not what it means to know me, declares the Lord. He says, look back. You want your life to go good. That's, there's nothing wrong with us wanting our lives to go well. But he said, you're looking in the wrong places. Actually, what he was doing was he was building a bigger palace. He was oppressing people to take care of his needs. And he goes, that's not going to work. Look at your father. It went well with him. What did he do? He defended the poor and the needy. But it was that last sentence that stuck with us so much. Is this not what it means to know me, says the Lord? And we begin to understand there's something about Jesus and who he is and what he does that we're only going to understand as we allow ourselves to get involved with the poor. Now, at this time when that passage came, I, had a, I have a religion degree from university. I've been in seminary. I've been a pastor for seven years. I knew it up here, but we said, let's take the concept and let it become worked out in here. And so we began uh, by that, by just hanging out in the inner city. We had no clue what we were doing, but we went because Jesus said, is this not what it means to know me uh, when you're among the poor? And so I think I told this story last time I was here. I'm going to tell it again because it's such a good story. So uh, I kept going uh, down and saying, Lord, I just want to understand you. I don't want to fix it. I don't have the answer. I want to understand you. And you know what kept happening? I kept meeting people that I would look at their lives and go, your life makes no sense to me. But what you just did is more like Jesus than what I do. It just messed with me all the time. So my, one of my favorite stories that happened, this was in the inner city of Kansas City, was a guy named Tommy that I met in an inner city nursing home. It was a 
Uh, it was not your grandmother's nursing home. I mean, it was, an, it was a three-story house that had uh, mentally ill people in it, elderly people in it, uh, guys coming out of jail that were rehabbing in it. This was the nursing home, you know. And uh, so I went down there because I had befriended a lady that was working there, and I wanted to go see her workplace. And, uh, and this guy named Tommy comes by on crutches. And uh, probably at that time, and I was in my 40s, probably similar age, stringy hair, looked like he just crawled out from under a bridge somewhere. And, uh, and so uh, being the Christian that I was, I decided I would be kind to him. And I reached out my hand and I said, I'm Don. And he said, I'm Tommy. And he sa- I said, what happened to you, Tommy? And I thought, well, I mean, my mind, I'd already figured he probably got drunk, fell down some stairs, you know, and he was rehabbing there on my tax dollars, probably paying for this, right? And, uh, and he said, well, I was walking down an alley, and these 10 men had surrounded this 14-year-old girl, and they were going to assault her. And he said, and I got in the middle of it, and I created a commotion so she could run away. And he said, and they stabbed me, they shot me, and they hit me with a carjack. And then he put a, his little finger in my face and he said, and you know what? I'd do it again because it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I, that's what I did. Wow. Uh, my breath went away, you know? I said, thank you. And got my left as quickly as I could. And uh, I was walking to my car and just oh, so undone by it. And my daughter was 14 at the time. And I thought, would I do that for my daughter? And I thought, yeah, I think I would do it for my daughter. But would I do that for somebody I didn't know? Would I risk my life for somebody I didn't know? And maybe a girl who didn't hang out in the places she should have been hanging out in anyway. Would I do that? And before I could answer it, I felt like the Lord just said, it's the story of the Good Samaritan. Go read it again. And, you know, I'd read that book, that story since I was a little guy. I'd done the felt boards in Sunday school, you know, the flannel graphs. I'd done it all. I knew the Good Samaritan story, but all of a sudden it went from here down into here because I saw it. So this journey that we went on to try to understand God's heart for the poor just was messing with our lives. I'm not sure we did anything for anybody else, but boy, for us, it was amazing. And we were experiencing Jesus in a way we'd never experienced him before. And that led us then ultimately to go overseas on our first mission trip, which actually happened about 20 years ago right now when we went to Chennai, India on a nine-day mission trip, just Julie and I. And that was an amazing story of a divine appointment and the way God worked. And since that time, about 35 subsequent trips to India uh, in our lives uh, and still working with the same people that we worked with before. And it was there in India that I began to experience Jesus in a whole new way as I saw the way he interacts with the poor. And my life got changed. You know, but why the poor? I mean, why would God do it this way? I mean, wouldn't it make more sense if Luke 4, 18 said, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the rich and the famous, the, the decision makers, the politicians and movie stars and star athletes so that they can influence the rest of the world for my mission. I mean, isn't that how we think? You go after the influential ones. I mean, if we're going to make the difference, let's see that person, you know, that stands up after the Super Bowl and says that, you know, and gives glory to Jesus Christ, which praise God they did that. I'm so proud of those guys. But anyway, aren't they the ones that changed the world? And, And the Lord says, no, I'm going to the poor. Why? Well, we get some hints of that in James, the second chapter. And James is, you know, the leader of the church, one of the apostles, 
And he tells this story starting in verse two. He says, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. He says, if you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet, then have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, this is the key verse, verse five here. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen the poor of the earth to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? What James is saying here, he's saying, hey, when somebody with money comes into your meeting, you pay special attention to him and you treat the poor people bad. He's saying, stupid, really. The poor people are the ones that have something that's going to help you. All the rich people have is money. They got faith. They got the true inheritance. And I've seen this in my life. I, I think about just in October being in, uh, in Sri Lanka and being out in a village in the middle of nowhere at a house church meeting with these just beautiful believers worshiping and afterwards praying. And a lady came and for prayer and, and she, a very poor lady, and, and she began to manifest a demon as we prayed for her. It was choking her. It was terrifying watching it. And our guys prayed for her and she got totally free. And the next day, uh, I saw her. She had joy. She was filled with a big smile on her face. And I thought, wow, the good news to the poor. It's still happening, you guys. It's still happening today. I think about a, a guy that I met in Kansas City named Ram Rai. Not a, he's not from Texas, by the way. That is a, a Bhutanese name. He's a guy that grew up in Bhutan. He was a refugee in Kansas City, probably like a lot of people that live in these apartments around here. And I had befriended this group of young guys and was hanging out with them. And uh, they weren't believers. They were Hindus. And uh, I was in their apartment one day talking with them. And Ram got a phone call. And he'd been laid off from his job. Well, that was a big deal. It wasn't like he had savings or anything else. He needed that job. And uh, so he was sad. And I said, hey, let's pray right now in the name of Jesus for your job. And, and so we prayed. And he let me pray. And we prayed in the name of Jesus. And then I left. And Three weeks later, I went back, and he said, I got my job back. And I said, oh, great. It was just a temporary layoff. He goes, no, it was Jesus. It was your Jesus that got my job back. I was convicted. I was like, oh, my gosh. I hadn't even considered that. That's how. <laughs> Sorry, guys. It's the truth. But that's how he saw it, because he's rich in faith. But one of my favorite stories, amazing story, is a woman that we have met in India, and uh, our church there in India is led by a guy uh, named Deva, and, and Deva had decided he was going to take his church on a mission trip. And so for some time, they were going to uh, get prepared for this. They went 42 hours on a train with families on a mission trip. That sounds horrible to me. <laughs> they loved it. They thought it was just so much fun. So uh, anyway, they, they needed, uh, so they said, we as a church, their Indian church, we're going to come together and take an offering. We have a time on this particular date where we're going to take an offering to help people go on this mission trip. So I think the offering was set for a Friday. And then Sunday before that, after his church service, a lady came and said, Pastor, will you pray for me? And he said, what can I pray for? And she said, my husband is a drunkard. He doesn't come home. He doesn't feed us. We're starving. When he does show up every now and then, he beats us. 
He said, I, she said, I have nothing left in the house. I had one cracker. I gave it to my daughter. And she said, then I tied a rope around my stomach because the hunger pains were so bad to try to eliminate my hunger pains. So we prayed for her. And uh, the next day she calls and says, you aren't going to believe this. My husband came back last night. He was sober and he brought food. And she was so excited. So that's on Sunday, Monday, she's called him. On Friday comes the day they're going to take the offering for the mission trip. And Dave is watching the people come and give their things. He sees this lady bring an entire bag of coins and put it into the offering. And he thinks, wow, God has really blessed her this week. So he goes to her afterwards and he goes, man, I mean, not only did your husband come back, but look at this. The Lord has really blessed you this week. And she said, oh, no, no, pastor, we've been saving that for months. And he looked at her and he said, you mean you had money and you were, you were not eating while you had this money? And she said, no, that money is for the offering. She said, because if I die, I'll be with Jesus. But those people have never heard. Wow. That's rich in faith. That's what the poor have. And that's why I believe God answered it this way. You know, why? Why does God care so much about the poor? I, the illustration I have is of my two youngest sons. They're grown now, but when they were littler, they were good friends, but they were three or four years apart. So Matt, who was the, not the second from youngest, and Jack. Matt was always about this much bigger than Jack. Now Jack's actually past him. But um, if I was sitting downstairs and I heard the, the, they liked each other, but they're brothers, okay? So uh, when I heard the screaming and yelling and things starting to uh, be knocked around the walls upstairs, of course, I would run up. Without knowing the situation, guess whose side I was on? You're on this one. Why? Because he can't defend himself. Do I love him more? No. No, I love him equally. But you start there. You see, God loves being father, and he loves dependency. So when God announces his son as the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor, he's saying, I love being father. Now, the good news is this. I mean, when we think about what, is we, what does this have to do with us, the first thing is we're all poor. We're all poor. I remember the time, you guys will appreciate, a lot of you know Drew, and so Drew's our oldest son. Drew's had the wisdom of about an 85-year-old since he was about 12. And, uh, and so uh, one time, Drew and I were out, and we were on another family vacation. That's not all we did growing up, but we did have some. But uh, uh, he and I, we were in Colorado, and we were in a beautiful place, and he and I went out on a little father-son time. We're driving through the mountains, looking at these beautiful multimillion-dollar homes, uh, Drew has just gone to India with us for the first time. He's been hanging out in the inner city with us a little bit. And we get in a conversation, and Drew says, you know, Dad, I like poor people better than rich people. And I thought, oh. I mean, that kind of made me happy, but I thought, well, I'm going to prod him a little bit on this. And I go, but Drew, I mean, really, they have so many problems. I mean, their lives are so complicated. And he looked at me, and with like a duh dad look, he said, Dad. He said, rich people have just as many problems. They just know how to hide them better. You know, in, in Psalm uh, chapter 40, verse 17, King David, the greatest king in all of Israel's history, says this, I am poor and needy, but the Lord thinks about me. 
You know, the reality of it is we spend all of our lives trying to never get into a position of being poor and needy. And the Lord says, no, I love dependency. I love desperation. I love it when you're hurting. I love being father. That's why I believe God announced his son this way. He's on him to preach good news to the poor, and that's us. But not just us, right? And secondly, I think of that verse in Matthew eleven six. 6, we looked at, blessed is he who's not offended because of me. Because the problem is when we admit that we're poor and needy and when we face that stuff, it doesn't always just change quite as quickly as we want it to. You know, John the Baptist is in prison about to get his head cut off while Jesus is doing his ministry. And when he goes and asks you the Messiah, he's thinking, when are you going to come and establish your kingdom in Israel? When are you going to get me out of this prison? And Jesus says, yeah, tell him what I do and, and what you see me do and what you hear me say. And blessed is he who's not offended because of me. I remember a time where David called me on the phone from India, and he said, uncle, he calls me uncle, he said, uncle, how, why is it that I can go into the villages and preach the gospel and pray for the sick and they get healed, and my back is killing me? He goes, why is this? And that's the dilemma. That's the this side of heaven thing we have to live with. And so what we end up doing a lot of times, we say, we're going to self-protect. We're not going to be honest. We're not going to have needs. And the Lord said, no, the Spirit of the Lord's upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to you, the poor. Blessed is he who's not offended because of me. And then third, we got to look and say, if this is what Jesus is doing, shouldn't it be what we're doing? I mean, Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So if his heart is for the poor, then our hearts need to be for the poor. That doesn't mean you have to go all the way overseas to do it, but some of you are called to do that. But within, I know one of the reasons uh, Zach wanted this church in this area is because of the opportunities that exist right here in these neighborhoods. I love what you're doing Saturday morning. That's awesome. And when you go and you do that, I encourage you to go not to say, oh, I'm doing my time and filling in a project. Go and try to meet somebody. Get to know them, hear their story, and let their life change your life, because it will. This is why the Lord says, He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you today uh, for your ways. Lord, they're so counterintuitive to us. They're so different than what we would think. But they're so right, and they're so wise. And Lord, we come before you this morning, and Lord, I know uh, that in this congregation, Lord, every one of us has areas in our life where we feel so needy and so poor, so broken. And Lord, we want to come to to you with them. We don't want to hide. We don't want to pretend. But God, we come and say, Lord, look at us. We're poor and needy. But we thank you, Lord, in that state that you're thinking about us. Your heart is for us. Lord, speak to our own hearts. Do what you want to do in us. And then use us to do what you do in others. That's what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.